This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Scattered throughout this fall, we're going to be talking about the elephant in the room. We're going to be using this little idiom to talk about three very messy issues in our lives, our communities, our homes that often go unaddressed. In reality, these elephant issues are large and destructive problems. They're laden with sin and often seem obvious to all, except often the one who's closest to the issue. After all, sin likes to stay hidden, and we oftentimes like to help that along. We like to hide our sin ourselves. And sin also, though, has a way of deadening our senses, quieting the shouts of our conscience, and mentally minimizing its terrible results. Together, this is why people can actually have an elephant-sized problem in the living room of their hearts and yet grow quite accustomed to random trumpet sounds and broken furniture and weird smells drifting through the room, as it were. In Ephesians chapter 4, we hear people with this kind of elephant issue and situation being described this way. And Paul says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him. This morning, the elephant I want to address is the issue of anger. Anger. Anger is an elephant-sized issue that many of us have actually grown more and more accustomed to in our lives. For many, anger has transitioned from this uh, frequent vice to actually this celebrated virtue and TED Talks like why we get mad and why it's healthy or in the outrage porn that's consistently displayed and news headlines. And there are many other examples far closer to home, like shouting matches and cold shoulders that are so frosty you'd think you're at a Wendy's restaurant, right? Experience these. All the while, the scriptures share warning after warning of the volatile and the dangerous and the destructive nature of anger. And while anger will not be an easy topic, For some of us to be hearing about this morning, it is one that we have got to talk about. But my hope this morning is not just to talk about the problem, but more than that, to share gospel-centered counsel for how to deal with this elephant. And so that's where we want to head this morning. And to do that, I want to invite you to turn with me to see this counsel of our Father's Word in Ephesians chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there, Ephesians Chapter 4. Ephesians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. And if you know much about the life of the Apostle Paul, you probably know and are aware that he knew a thing or two about anger and its dangers and how the gospel comes to bear on it. 
And here in chapter 4, Paul is calling on men and women who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ to live the Christian life with integrity. Integrity. He describes this as stepping out of the darkness and taking off the old identity with our old desires and our old ways of thinking and our old ways of doing things that belong to our old life in the circus prior to Christ and the world around us. And then, to like a brand new set of clothes, to put on our new identity, our new desires, our new ways of thinking, our new ways of doing things that are consistent with being a follower of Christ. And it's in that mindset that Paul moves the conversation forward with a series of commands. And he starts out and he says in verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, even with elephant-sized messes, church. And here he's commanding them and sharing with them why. It says, for we are members one of another. We're in this together. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Now we'll come back to that verse, but don't miss how it fits in with the rest of the commands here. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. We'll pause there. No, he's not saying occasional corrupting talk coming out when you're really upset. Your spouse or the guy who just cut you off in traffic, it doesn't say that. It says, let no corrupting talk, as in no filthy speech, is allowed to come out, period. But only as such is for the good, for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, church, these are commands, and when we practice them, uh, we are not giving the enemy a foothold in our life, but rather also avoiding, as verse 30, 30 goes on to point out, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for on the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then don't miss this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we stand back and we consider this passage, we can see how it shines a spotlight on simple and yet profound truths and strategies for how a Christian can deal with anger in a godly way. And from that, we have a key takeaway I want us to grasp this morning, and that's this. We must learn to see our reasons for and responses of anger in light of God's. So our anger can be reshaped. We must learn to see our reasons for and our responses of anger in light of God's. So that our anger can be reshaped. Think about it. When the emotion of anger flares up, there's always two sides to it. There's the reason. There's the source. There's the stimulus that's provoking that emotion. And then on the other side is the response that that emotion can start shaping. And those two sides 
are linked together. Thinking about one or both of those sides is usually how we think and we talk about anger. And I've got news then for some of us in here. You're in charge of that chain. You are responsible for both of the links in it. To grasp this, think back to the first example of anger we find in the Bible. Think back to the story of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we find Cain and his brother Abel, and they're offering sacrifices to God. And Genesis 4 says this, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Do you hear it? Cain has a reason for anger that God is pulling in to question. While warning Cain about the response his anger is shaping. He's warning him about what's going to happen if he doesn't take charge of both of the links in this chain. Both his reason for being angry and the response his anger is shaping. Both are on the line. And friend, if you want to avoid sending some dangerous and destructive decisions running rampant through your life and the lives of those around you, including this community here, then you need to pause and you need to start dealing with the reasons and the responses of your anger. And with that, as you're thinking about your life and you're thinking about the relationships around you, if it seems like everywhere around you, you turn to those relationships and they seem consistently strained. They seem consistently like they're, they're fraying or like they're on fire. Or you look back and you see lots and lots of relationships that have been burned. I would invite you to consider if it could be that your anger, whatever the reason for it, has gone already unaddressed for some time, and you have inadvertently given the evil one a foothold in your life, like verse 26 talks about. John Calvin once commented on this passage saying, I have no doubt that Paul was warning us to beware lest Satan should take possession of our minds like an enemy-occupied fortress and do whatever he pleases. Could it be that you've got an elephant friend? Could it be that you have undealt with anger that has resulted in words that should never have been spoken, actions that should never have been taken, and it maybe been taken in a way that was in a swift and unbridled manner, or maybe in a quiet, inward sourness that just occasionally bleeds out when you're not on guard? Friends, these are all signs that you've got an elephant in your life that needs to come into the light and be reshaped. And this passage is an opportunity to encounter the truth so that we can learn to see our reasons for anger and our responses of anger in light of God's so our anger can be reshaped. And maybe if you're waking up to this problem and you're thinking, maybe that's what's happening in my life, I want to invite you to pay attention as we examine each of the two links in this chain. And first, by seeing our reasons for anger in light of God's, 
Our reasons for anger in the light of God's. And fair warning, this is where the bulk of our work needs to be done as we dig in. Now, as we read this passage, Paul said, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, let's be good students. Let's take note that Paul is dividing out our action from the emotion, from the motivation here, the reason and the response. And yet he remains concerned about both of them. Think about it. If we were tracking along perfectly with uh, what Paul is saying here, and we were avoiding some kind of angry, sinful response that's being shaped, as he says, Paul would still be calling on us to deal with our emotion of anger. Because either way, the emotion is to be snuffed out by the end of the day. That's the idea behind this call to not let the sun go down on your anger. In biblical times, a worker was to be paid his wages by sundown. And Paul seems to be borrowing on this concept, uh, which means that when it comes to the reasons for our anger, our emotion of anger, that we're told to deal with it, to figure it out and be done, to not let it hang around. That's the command. So then think about that emotion of anger. How does that work? Well, we get angry when something uh, goes wrong with what you or I desire. We wanted our team to win, and it's losing, right? Um, We wanted to be treated fairly, and we weren't. We did not want to be put on hold for the third time, and we were, right? We find new reasons, big, small, for anger. When someone or something opposes our desires, whatever they are, And when that happens, it starts putting kindling and logs on our emotional fire pit to see if our hearts will will start get going. That's how our emotion of anger works. And when we compare our reasons for anger to God's, there are some similarities. And there are also some glaring differences. Somewhat like ours, God's anger is eventually aroused when some kind of rebellion to his desires or decrees occurs. He cares when people are being treated wrongly. And in fact, when we actually look at God's wrath, God's anger, we see in Scripture, one of the ways that it's different is it is way beyond ours. His contempt of evil is to an absolute degree and intensity that stretches beyond the limits of our imagination. And yet, In comparing our reasons for anger to God's, there's a huge difference. God's anger is never corrupt. It is always perfectly on point with the rest of his nature. So as one of the authors pointed out over time, human anger is not always sin, but it's always affected by our sin. Our sinful nature skews our perspective in our favor. This bias makes us highly sensitive to the offenses while leaving us blind to our own. Take the old story of Jonah, for example. Remember the story of Jonah? Uh, This is one of the most vivid comparisons we have in the Bible between our reasons for anger and God's anger. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, there was a very wicked city called Nineveh. And God's wrath was about to fall on it, utterly destroying it. And so in his wrath, what does God do? He sends a prophet. 
He sends a prophet with a merciful message for them to repent before he destroys them. Well, Jonah doesn't want to do it. Uh, he runs away. He gets swallowed by a fish. He gets brought back. And when he finally arrives, he barely says anything to the people of Nineveh. And yet, surprisingly, they repent. They repent. And then this scene follows in Jonah chapter 4. We read this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And here's the kicker. Verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Or as another translation puts it to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Friend, is your reason for anger staying in step with God's? Now, absolutely, God is angered over sin. All of it. Mine yours, the person sitting next to you, and our cultures. And he cares about it more than we could ever know. But see, friends, when the scripture says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, in James 1.20, it meant it. But time and again, church, we're like Jonah. We're all caught up in all of our reasons for anger, and we are oblivious to God's desires, completely missing his heart for us and for those around us. And when that's the case, we never doubt our reasons for being angry with whatever, whoever is opposing our desires. Like Jonah, we see the opposition in high definition while staying oblivious to ourselves. Church, catch this. There are some legitimate reasons for anger, but that doesn't give us license to hold on to them. There are legitimate reasons for anger, but that doesn't give us license to hold on to them. When we do, we end up like Jonah did here. That's when God, the only perfectly righteous one who has shown us mercy, shows us even more mercy and steps in and asks us, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right? Is your reason for anger staying in step with God's? And here's the point I'm driving at, church. On this side of eternity, our reasons for anger, whatever they are, must be continuously handed back into God for reshaping. In this life, you will get bent out of shape, and so will your reasons for being angry. And those reasons, undealt with, will shape a sinful response. If you want to be angry and yet not sin, you must keep turning it back over to a heavenly father whose anger is perfectly just and who can reshape our reasons so that our anger moves out of the driver's seat of our heart, out of the driver's seat of our actions so that wisdom and justice and truth and love can take over. How that happen, practically speaking? How are our reasons for anger reshaped by God? Although elephants don't usually move out overnight, 
Uh, here are three ways that you can cooperate with God in seeing the reasons for your anger reshaped so that it's snuffed out by the end of the day. Here's the first one. By asking questions. Look at God's example with angry people like Jonah, like Cain. What does he do? He interrogates their anger. A favorite author of mine suggests that when you see a big reaction of anger within yourself or within somebody else, ask the question, what's that about? What's that about? Right? Slow down. Where's that response coming from? That's the initial way to apply God's example here, that we can start reshaping our reasons for anger. Second, by getting alone, being quiet, and reflective. Opposite of what we usually want to do when we're angry. In verse 26, though, when Paul says, be angry and do not sin, he is quoting from Psalm 4-4 that says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Anger clouds our thinking. As the old saying goes, it makes mountains out of molehills. Anger blows things out of proportion. I find that when I even wait 15 or 30 minutes to reread an aggressive email I've received, it often in reality was much less aggressive than when I first considered it at first blush. Taking time to pause, get quiet, and be alone and prayerfully reflective can help us cooperate with God as he's reshaping our reasons. Finally, by placing the priority in the problem on what is grieving the Lord. You know, in counseling people, this continue, is the continuous challenge to try to help them put the priority in the problem on God's standards as the most offended pro- party. This is difficult because it requires submitting ourselves along with everyone else to God's standard. And with that, let me tell you that if you can't, in looking at a problem, figure out what God's priority or what's grieving him in this situation, then Could it be that maybe you are getting bent out of shape over the wrong thing entirely? That this is simply a case of misplaced anger. Now, in those three steps that we take, they're part of how our reasons can be reshaped. But what about seeing our responses of anger being reshaped by God's? What about this? As we look at the second link in this chain, we we see in verses 31 and 32, this contrast being set up. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul is contrasting six sinful responses with three godly responses. See, the emotion of anger, it doesn't stay put. Maybe you've heard the old saying, I don't get mad, I get... I see you have. (laughs) See, emotion doesn't stay there. Emotion turns to action. It doesn't stay put. Undealt with anger boils into one or more of the problems on this list. And this list is a picture of anger hanging out with its five best friends. Those five friends are bitterness, which is resentment over past wrongs, wrath, which like rage is giving full vent to someone's anger and probably in this context in the physical sense, clamor, which is yelling or screaming at someone in anger, 
Slander, which is intentionally being hurtful with your words out of anger. And finally, we have malice, which is desiring evil or catastrophe to happen to someone. All of these are symptoms of an elephant-sized issue in your life. But can you see it? Can you see it there? Dr. Ed Welch tells a story of playing racquetball with a friend. His friend wasn't having a very good game. It was not going well. And uh, as he was losing and starting to mutter some inarticulate things and then calling himself an idiot and then yelling at the ball, and you get the picture. Um, But things began to become more intense. Welch writes, he finally had had enough. After losing a point, he threw his racket with all the force he could muster. Since anger is stupid, he forgot they had the leash around his wrist. And so when he let go of the racket, it hit him square in the shin bone. Blood went everywhere. Then he became even angrier, and, and he ripped off the leash, and he beat the racket against the floor without mercy. It would never miss hit another ball. <laughs> Sound familiar? Well, after his friend came to his senses, and they laughed it off, Welch wrote one more comment about this scene, saying, sometimes it's funny when a human being acts like an animal, but only if the animal is in a cage or an isolated racquetball court where nobody gets killed. We laugh together, but I wouldn't want to be his spouse. Friends, responses that are cultivated out of anger are dangerous. They're volatile. They do not produce justice, discipline, or wise choices. They are only there to pervert them. They will not help you. Instead, our responses of anger must continuously be reshaped by exchanging them for God's. The wording Paul uses here indicates this continual putting off in exchange for what we're to put on. And in comparing ours to godly responses we're called for in this passage, we've got to ask, how do our responses need to be reshaped? Well, first we see that we exchange bitterness and rage, and we're told to continually be kind, being kind. Growing up, I can remember uh, telling my mother uh, many times that my brothers were making me angry. And my mother, without fail, would say, no, John, you are choosing to be angry. She would always respond that way. And I know at times that when we think about this, responding in anger, we have to realize, is a choice, just like being kind. Perhaps at times in the face of anger and argument, we can feel like we're being fake by being kind. But realize, both are choices. And Jesus' command was to bless even when we have others who curse us. And so whether you're speaking the truth, disciplining a child, or whatever, carry it out with a response that's being shaped by kindness. What is right, good, best for the person in front of me? Second, in exchange for being angry and loud, we're told to continually pursue being tenderhearted. Don't become callous to the pain of others. When working with difficult people, you might be tempted to be angry more often than not, But I would encourage you to remember Longfellow's words, they've helped me, that you may meet a man and think him cold when he is merely sad. Everyone has a past. Choose to continually, though, in spite of wherever that past might be, to entrust yourself to God, to cultivate a tender heart. Now, finally, we're told to continually be forgiving. And Paul adds with this action a qualifier. He says, as God 
in Christ forgave you. Well, I consider that response in light of the elephant-sized issue of anger in someone's life. It reminds me of that scene from the apostle Peter and Jesus, where Peter's angry over something his brother, probably Andrew, uh, did. And Peter's feeling like he is forgiving Andrew way more than he deserved. He's forgiving him for doing him something that was wrong seven times. I mean, how many times is someone allowed to do something wrong and be forgiven for it? Or failing to do something that they should have done. And so he asked Jesus, if seven times is enough, do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Not seven, but 70 times seven. Or in other words, there's no limit to the forgiveness because we are to forgive as God forgave us. And yes, forgiveness and trust are two very different things, but we are to still forgive. All of our responses here, we are to look at for God calling us towards, and I think that probably this response is the hardest, but it's here in this response that more than any other, the gospel shines through in a response that's been reshaped. And friends, if you want to lay the ax at the root of anger, if you want to find power to swing that ax one more time, then come back to the power of the cross. If you want to forgive and have a tender heart or be kind, come with your anger, come with your bitterness, come with your rage, and stand at the foot of the cross and make them gaze. Take in the sight, take in the truth once again, that Jesus bore the anger and the wrath of God that we deserved. He gave himself up as an offering and a sacrifice for us. This is the gospel coming to bear on anger because the cross, there at the cross, you will always find a pool of cool water flowing from the side of Christ to extinguish the rage and to reshape us freeing from the anger that we feel, the torturous consequences that it will bring. It always enables us to show a gospel of grace to others. And church, if that's our response, then step by step, the elephant of anger will find that at the foot of the cross, there's no more room for it to stay. Amen. You pray with me. Some of us in here are thinking this morning that they're not a Christian, but these truths about anger sure sound familiar. I want to encourage you, if that's you, to recognize that the axe can be laid to your root too. I invite you to call on the Lord and to invite him to forgive your sins, to wash you afresh, to wash you for the very first time, to cleanse you by his blood, through his power, one at the cross, for paying the price for all of our sin, our anger included, and that you can embrace a new life in Christ through his death and his resurrection. I invite you to call on him for forgiveness of sin, to get hand your life over to him, to follow him. For the others of us in here, Lord Jesus, we recognize that we fall short. We have not always handled our anger rightly. 
we have failed oftentimes to hand it back to you and instead of taking matters into our own hands. So Lord, we call on you as the one who can show perfect justice that we would hand our hearts back into you today. We ask that you would help us in your mercy to take out of our hands the anger that we keep placing there and to reshape them for a different kind of response. I pray that you would fill our hearts again with a fresh understanding of how your son Jesus bore your wrath that we might receive life instead. We pray that that gospel would shape us in our lives as we go forward from here to show a different kind of response. We pray that in your blessed name. Amen.